Welcome to Elman if you are new. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room that look like this. On the inside, you will get some notes that go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about, uh, some questions to also go and reflect on what we talk about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, This is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And it says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who understand who you are and the justice that you bring and the righteousness that you bring and that we would trust you for that in our lives, that we would see you as overall and the grace that you bring and who you call us to be in this world and we would begin to live out differently outside these walls so that justice and mercy and hope and righteousness would be restored because of how your people begin to live. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is Ecclesiastes. This is week nine. Uh, We're looking at the words of old King Solomon as reflects over his life about all the ways that he messed things up and the ways he wished he would have done it better. It gets very philosophical at times, but it really asks some good questions, and I think they're questions a lot of people in our culture today ask as well. Now, when I diagrammed out Ecclesiastes, originally I planned to go all the way through the end of chapter three today, and I was going to call it Death and Dust. Very uplifting message, by the way. Uh, But as I started to write it out, I started more to focus on the question and the statement that Solomon makes there in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I I thought we kind of sit some time with that today, where he says, Moreover I saw under the sun, in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work." I don't know if you have ever looked around the world today and said that same thing. Why is there wickedness in the place of justice? Why is there wickedness where righteousness is supposed to be? The psalm writer says in Psalm 73 verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Like how come they get along so much better than I do? Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 1, Solomon will go on and say, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them the the week i put this message together there was actually another school shooting and really when that happens there's all these questions that come along with that and typically instead of trying to figure out the solution to the problem we get so busy with the two sides that come at it looking and throwing barbs at each other that the the problem never gets even addressed like our thing in the middle of all this should be we want kids to be safe that should be what we all want and then let's talk about the different ways to do that and maybe there are things on both sides I mean maybe you should be training some educators how to properly handle themselves and self-defense and and maybe the ones with like nice peaceful demeanors. I'm not talking about handing them an Uzi. You don't need Rambo as a teacher, but you know maybe there's something to that. And on the other side of that, we need we need much better mental health care. We do. We need to be able to identify and evaluate and help people. We need to stop ignoring the weird kids and the weird neighbors and stop allowing kids that don't fit in to be bullied. But really the greater question that comes along when these things take place is this overarching idea, and people ask it, is why did God allow this to happen? Why did God let this? Shouldn't he do something about it? 
Now, six months ago, we did this series through Tim Keller's book called The Reason for God. And that's one of the objections that people had to God that we covered through that book, that God wasn't there or God didn't care or that he didn't exist, and that's why there's injustice. You can go and listen to them all online. They're free. But today I want to take a different run at this. I believe that God allows many things sometimes in the world because God expects his people to be doing something about it, that we were called to be his image bearers in the world. And as his image bearers, we reflect who he is. We're supposed to step into places of injustice and where there's unrighteousness and bring hope and truth and life again. I believe God expects his people to be doing some certain things because of the grace that we have received. And in our series last year through the gospel called Didn't See That Coming, we spent a lot of time talking about the image of God and how man was created and how we were meant to live in that image. I told you that in ancient times there, there's no media, no newspapers, no internet. So what kings would do was they would set up images of themselves all over wherever their kingdom was. And the farthest flung regions of a kingdom, there'd be a statue or something of the king so people would know who the king was. It's a little like today in politicians where they will put their name on a bridge or on a freeway or something like that. You go to the post office, there's a picture of the president and the governor in, in the post office because politicians want us to know who's in charge and it's not us, it's somebody else. The writer of Genesis says, God makes us in his image. And then he sends us out into the world. And just like a king would place images of himself all over the kingdom, so our God has sent us into the world to be his image bearers, human beings, so the world would know who its ruler is. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And it's not just about a certain quality, and it's not just about reason and free will. It's about our role in the cosmic scheme of things, that we were made to reign under God's character, in God's power, in God's stead, for the benefit of the earth, so the whole earth would know whose reign it is under. We are made in the image of God, and that's what that means. And God's plan is to graciously share his power by creating a community of people who would love one another and live out in the world ways that look different than how it's been done before, that we'd be marked by his strength and his goodness. That's who we are. And so Ecclesiastes asks these questions of wickedness and righteousness and justice. All these things come together because of how God's image bearers were supposed to be living. Now, I believe that God is ruling and reigning, that Jesus is our true king, but under his reign, we were sent into the world to image him. I think we mess it up, just like Israel has done on multiple occasions, but it doesn't diminish or cancel our cause. I even gave you this gospel statement one year ago. It said this, The gospel is the good news that God is ruling and reigning, and he has restored us to relationship and life with him, so we would image who he is to the world by words and actions. And too often, instead of living that ideal, Christians become hypocritical liars. I know that because I call myself a Christian, and many times I can be a hypocritical liar myself. But God still calls us back into loving and following Him and beginning to live differently, like our past doesn't have to affect everything that happens to us in the future. But a lot of people today will look at Christianity and say, Christ is unworthy of following because of His followers. And Christians look back and we say, well, but that's the beauty of the gospel we're saved despite our hypocrisy. And again, we start throwing things back and forth. See, Solomon says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. 
This is the seasons and what God is going to do to bring about hope and righteousness again. Like a time and a season for everything that God's going to bring about. A time and a season for you to lose an hour of sleep. That was last night. And so I do think this is true of God himself. He is going to bring all this to bear. But there's also a time and a season for his people, his image bearers, to live in a God-honoring way. And I think that is now. Now, I will deal with God's perceived injustice later in Ecclesiastes because Solomon will come back to that. But I kind of want to take a different tact at this today. Uh, I have spent whole messages in the past ripping Christians to pieces for how we live, but I'd also like to tell you that sometimes it isn't just Christians who are to blame. Sometimes it's how people perceive their own hurt and their own injustice that was done to them. And this is not a justification sermon, so you get to walk out of here and be like, I can live like a tool. God doesn't care. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think Solomon was wise, but I think sometimes his depression over how his life turned out and the meaninglessness of it overshadowed some of his words. People become bitter very easily in our culture today. We want to lash out because we have expectations for other people that people can never meet. But this happens also back then in Solomon's day. And so if someone sins against you or you perceive a sin against you in one way, you can either forgive someone or you can become bitter. And when you become bitter, you'll most likely lash out at other people and ultimately lash out at God himself. Now, this will come in three ways. Uh, First off, maybe somebody really did sin against you. And when that happens, the question becomes, what do you do with it? Do you become like that person that sinned against you? Or you do about as God's image bearer in the world and begin to live differently in that? Sometimes, secondly, maybe someone didn't really sin against you. You just think they did. Like sometimes somebody is maybe mad at you when you find out about it. You're like, why are they mad at me? Well, they said, I said, well, you know, I never said that. And so it's like this this idea that you didn't really do this, but they think that you did. Uh, A couple years ago, I had somebody who was mad at me. And I heard about it from like three different people. And because of my personality, I go talk to that person, like you should. (laughs) I walk up and I say, hey, I hear you're mad at me. Well, I'm not mad at you. Well, I've had three people now tell me that you're mad at me. Well, okay, maybe I'm mad at you. Okay, well, well, why? Well, you know, so-and-so said that you said this about me. Well, I didn't say that about you. Well, you know, and I said, hold on a second. And -and so-and-so was about 40 feet away. (laughs) And so I went and I grabbed so-and-so. And and I brought so-and-so over and I said, hey, they said that you said that I said this about them. Oh, no, I didn't say that. And I go, okay. And I look at this person I go, are we good? I mean, you want to hear about, you know, misconstrued ideas, just read Elements Yelp reviews. You want to read something funny? Go to Yelp, read our reviews, okay? Because most of the reviews that are negative in there are because somebody misunderstood something I said or didn't understand the direction I was going. It, it's, it'll give you some hours of enjoyment this afternoon talking about it, but you, you can do that. Like, uh, t- last week, second service, I got up and I had to apologize for something that it sounded like I said, but I didn't really say, but it kind of sounded like it, so I wanted to make sure I apologized for it. Sometimes there's an expectation that doesn't get met. And we don't view the problem as the expectation. We view it as, some of you as, oh, you didn't meet this thing, and so you're the problem, not the expectation. And then third thing is what James 3.14 calls bitter envy or selfish ambition. Sometimes we tend to look at people around us who maybe have life differently than we do and we really want whatever life they have. Maybe we think they're more attractive or smarter than we are or we want their spouse or their life or their car or their job or their talent. Sometimes people just get offended because they're easily offended by something in their own life, and you are too close, and you become the easy outlet. It has happened to me in marriage counseling. You read one of the Yelp reviews. It's all about it. It's, it's, I'm not talking about it. It's already out there, so there you go. Uh, it has happened with runaway kids. It has happened with people who sometimes want to come here and tell Element what they think our vision should be, and our vision is not that. Uh, Driscoll once said, Bitterness at times is not so much related to the matter of the offense, but the proximity of the offender. 
which is totally true. You probably know what I mean. You just ended up too close to somebody who was going through something, and you, you got it. So what I want to do is have you open to John chapter 10, and I'm going to show you how this happened in Jesus' life. And I'm going to bring this back to the whole idea of what Solomon talks about here. I'm going to, and I'm going to bring it all back together. So, so just, just go with me here, because number two and number three happened to Jesus. Both of those things did. And the beauty of the gospel is those unrealistic expectations and all the perceived things that happen or don't happen, those were placed upon Jesus as well. And he has a way that he deals with it and what he calls us into as his image bearer. So John chapter 10, starting in verse 22, says this. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And that's the word for Messiah. So I'm going to explain what all is happening here. Prior to Jesus coming, Israel has this long history of being called to be image bearers of him out in the world. And sometimes they embraced that call, but most of the time they ran away from that call. They entered into captivity. They got free. They have a little in pseudo-freedom. In 175 to 164 B.C., the Israelites are in their country, but they're they're ruled now by another foreign superpower, this guy named Antiochus IV. Uh, We call him Antiochus Epiphanes. It means the illustrious one, or God made manifest. He's the son of a guy named Antiochus III, because they just rolled like that. They just kept going, who called himself Antiochus the Great, so you know where his son kind of got it. Uh, Now, he's a Syrian king, but he was was power hungry, and he's a little bit crazy. He has control of the region of Israel. Antiochus loved all things Greek. He loves Greek culture, Greek rationality. Greek philosophy, the Greek religion, uh, Greek yogurt, if it was around, I like that too, right? In order to consolidate his control, he forced all of his conquered people into the Greek religion. Now, the Greek religion at the time would take whatever people they conquered, and they would take whatever gods they had, and they would put them in their own pantheon of gods. And so you could worship your god, but you just had to worship everybody else at the same time. This worked everywhere except for the Jews because they're like, we believe in one God. There is no other God. That's all that we're going to worship, and and that's it. So Antiochus wants complete control of this area, so he declares war on God's people. He attacked Jerusalem. He takes over the temple. History says that when he took over the temple, he ended up killing 80,000 men and taking another 80,000 into slavery. Somewhere between 168 and 167 B.C., he goes into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and in the most holy place, he erects a statue of Zeus. And then he takes and has the Israelites come in, and he wants them to sacrifice pigs on the altar of God to Zeus. Now, pigs are unclean animals to Jews. Uh, They're still unclean in the Middle East today. I was in Cairo a few years ago, and I was at the Hard Rock Cafe, and I tried to get a bacon cheeseburger. Don't order it, okay? Not bacon. Not bacon. It's, it's like beef jerky on top of a... Just, you go to other countries, just NQR, not quite right. So that's what it is. And in the Middle East, they actually they don't have all the distinction we do for pig. They don't have like bacon and baby, baby back ribs and all this. What they have is just pig. It's all just pig because it's disgusting to them. So the outer courts of the temple, uh, some reports say that he turned into brothels. And so the whole temple of God is just moved in this place of idolatry and, and all this paganism. And so this is all, again, for him to destroy the worship of the one true God. If you possessed a copy of the scriptures, the, the Torah, the law, you could be executed. If you were a mother and you had your child circumcised and the government found out, they would nail you to a stake and tie your child around your neck until you both died. Because circumcision was considered evil because it destroyed the human form, and the Greeks were all about the human form. And so there are various revolts led by the Jews throughout the years to take back the temple, to take back Jerusalem. Nobody could get it done 
until in a village called Modin, there's a Greek officer. He goes in with his, with, his, uh, um, with his guys with him, and they go into this village, and they say, okay, we brought an idol, and we're going to have you bow down to this idol and sacrifice this pig and eat the flesh of a pig as you bow down to this. Again, activities forbidden to Jews. So the officer asks a man named Mattathias, who's a Jewish priest, to do this, and he says, I'm not going to do it. So another villager goes, no, no, get out of the way. I'll do it. I'll take care of it. So he walks up to do it, and this enrages this guy. So he pulls out a sword, Mattathias, and he kills this guy, then kills the officer. Then his five sons and the villagers jump on the other officers and take out this platoon. Then what they do is they run up into the hills to hide, and all the other Israelites start hearing about this. They start joining them up in the hills, and this is where this group called the Zealots begin up in the hills, and they're running and attacking Greek soldiers whenever possible. And I know it sounds like a recipe for like a Mel Gibson Braveheart movie, and Mel Gibson actually did talk about doing this at some point, but after many, 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 many battles, they actually are able to retake Jerusalem and the temple. It is really a miracle because it's like impossible odds. In 165, Judas Maccabee, the son of Mattathias, and his soldiers retake it. They go into the Jewish temple, and they're saddened by what they see there. What there is is there's weeds growing in the temple of God, All the things of value are broken or defiled or missing. And so what they do is they tear their clothes, which is a deep sign of mourning, and they repent for their own sins that led to this moment. And then what he does is he takes out the statue of Zeus, he takes out the altar, he rebuilds an altar, and they sacrifice to God, and they want to have a celebration. And when they do that, they want to light this thing called the menorah. Now, most of the oil that the menorah is burned with was defiled, and they only had enough to light the dedication candle for one day. But the oil miraculously lasts eight days. That's the amount of time it takes to make new oil. And this is where Hanukkah comes from. They celebrate this day, this feast, because God gave them back their city and their temple. It's called the Feast of Dedication, the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah. This is the background for where Jesus is when he's walking in this temple and these things are happening. Jesus is in this temple, kind of creating a revolution, calling people back to worship of the one true God who they lost their view of who he is. And so they come to him and they say, are you the Messiah? There are expectations of righteousness and justice, and we're living in wickedness. These are my expectations. What are you going to do? They are tired of being conquered by foreign invaders, and their idea is the Messiah is somebody who will come in and defeat the Romans and give them rule of their country back. Their view is limited strictly to the nation of Israel and not God's work in the whole world. Now, this becomes one of the reasons eventually that Jesus is killed. He didn't do what they expected him to do. Eventually, Israel all turns against him because he wasn't a military figure. And their question of asking him if he's the Messiah is exactly Solomon's question of injustice. What are you going to do about it? Well, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And they have an idea of what that's supposed to look like. And so the time has to be now, if you're the Messiah, this is what you're supposed to do. That's what they're saying. Jesus is walking around this temple. There are pieces of Solomon's older temple in it. That's why it's called Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Porch. You have these, these columns about 40 feet tall. There's a wall around them where they would meet for teaching during the winter so they weren't out in the open. And the Jews here believe that Judas Maccabee was the Messiah until he died. Okay, must not have been the Messiah. But now Jesus has told the woman at the well he's the Messiah. He has just healed a man from blindness and said he is the Son of God. So Jesus has been revealing himself and they press him on the Messiah question, this, this Redeemer that was promised. 
And this is a mixed bag of people, like today. Some want to know so they can follow. Other people want to know so they can blame him for all their problems. Other people want to know so they can turn him in as a blasphemer. So Jesus has a hard time answering this Messiah question because of all their preconceived ideas and expectations about who he was meant to be. It's, we are looking for someone to fit this box. Is that you? Are you going to fit my box? And this is how we look at injustice in the world today, especially when it comes to God. We have a way that we would do it. We have a way that we would fix it. And because God doesn't fix it the way that I would fix it, well, therefore, either God doesn't exist or God isn't real or God failed. That's how we walk towards it. This idea of injustice is so deeply ingrained in us because God has called us to be a people who live out a sense of justice. And when our life isn't based upon who God is, we start checking off all these boxes and wanting God to fill our boxes. And when God doesn't do it our way, we say, we say why? Why? Why is it hard for people today believe in Jesus? Because we have a box of justice and righteousness, and Jesus has to fit our box or we're not going to believe. What this is, is we are making God in our own image so we can bow down and worship ourselves, which we typically do in our culture today. Rather than letting God say who we are to be as his image bearers, we want God to image us. We're meant to be his image bearers. You've got to understand, Jesus is the cornerstone of faith, not our preconceived ideas. He should determine our belief structure. Are you the Messiah? How does Jesus answer that? John 10, 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and know, and I know them and they follow me. So Jesus tries to reset them in two ways here. First off, he says, he appeals to his works. Uh, this will be referring to Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. says, when the Messiah will come, he will open the eyes of the blind. Now, Jesus just did that right before you get to this in the book of John. So, check. Uh, the lame will walk. Check. Got that. People will be fed. Check. He'll bring living water. Check. Jesus demonstrates his authority. The second thing he says is, you're not believing because you're not my sheep. You're not hearing my voice. So, let me help you to understand this. Uh, if, if you're a parent or have had a parent, okay, uh, you know how this goes. When kids are little, they get to a point where they run around and their whole goal in life is to get away from their parent. Like then the parent has a meltdown or the kids have a meltdown or whatever. But eventually parents at some point, they'll get tired of it and they will start to use parent voice. Stop it. And that's totally different then, hey, unless, unless you're always yelling, stop it, that loud, then the kids don't know any difference. But if you're always like, hey, come on, and then stop it, then they know what that means. I got a dog, her name is Haiti, and Haiti just loves to peter around for everything. It's like, come on, Haiti, she's like, I'm going to sniff this, I'm going to eat that, oh, I'm going to bite the cat. You know, so she just does her thing. And, but eventually, sometimes I'll be like, Haiti! And she's like, Right? Because it's totally different. It's a different sound. As a kid, you know kind of what your parents' mood is based upon their tone. And Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. When I speak, they listen. Jesus says, look at the miracles I did. I speak for God. From here, Jesus will go on to talk about eternal life, that it's a gift that can never be taken away. It's not that we come to God as a people and say, God, here's my resume, and here's why you have to forgive me, because I drove the speed limit for 30 seconds on January 19th, 2019. Right? It's that Jesus is saying God wants to restore us. He is bringing righteousness. He is bringing justice. God pours his life into us here and now, so we start to change. And we start to live out as his image bearers in this world. We made who God made us to be. This continues on forever. Our lives can be marked with joy. Not the cessation of trial or pain because those things still come. But we realize life is a gift that God gives. And we can actually live in his joy. People love to tell me all the time about their friends and relatives. And they say, well, they used to be a Christian. And I'm always like, 
well, I don't understand that. Did they graduate? I mean, where, where did they go? What happened with that, right? I said, oh, no, no, no. They, they used to believe, and now they don't believe, and they're no longer a Christian. Guys, that's not possible. It's not. Either they never did know God, or they are in tremendous rebellion right now, like the prodigal son, and God is going to yank them back by their underwear and bring them home. It's just how it is. Jesus says salvation is you and me embraced by our Father, brought in. Jesus doesn't lose anybody that is in his hands. His mission is to restore us to who we were always meant to be, to redeem us, to bring us back so we're in a relationship with God again. There should be no more secure place for a believer than the arms of our Father. And I said secure, not safe, okay? Because many times God will take us into unsafe places, but we are secure. So Jesus makes this very deep statement, John 10, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. Again, trying to reset their expectations. Now, this would ring in the Jews' ears because the Shema was something the Jews would repeat three times a day. It's Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, the word there for one is this word called echad, and it means singularity and plurality. It's like used of a cluster of grapes, like one cluster, many grapes. Christians believe, we believe there is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each is a unique person and distinct, but they are one God. If you go to the gospel class, you can ask me questions about that. Jesus says, I and the Father are one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Jews know what he is saying when he says that. You're claiming to be God. And they try and kill him on the spot because it's blasphemy. And if Jesus didn't mean this, it would have been a perfect time to clarify, oh, no, 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 that's not what I meant. But he doesn't. Jesus actually doubles down and takes him into really deep water. And I'm going to read this, and I'm going to explain it, bring it back to Ecclesiastes, okay? John 10, 34 to 39. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, and what is that? Bringing righteousness, bringing justice, taking away wickedness. Then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He restates what he says in a little deeper way. How did the Jews respond? Again, they sought to arrest him. That word arrest is the word for seize, to lay their hands on, to grab a hold of. Many people go nuts over this passage, mostly going to verse 34, I have said you are gods because they misinterpret what Jesus is saying there. And it's interesting, the Jews who were there didn't misinterpret it at all. Um, let me see if I can explain this for you. Uh, there's lots of religions in the world today, but you can. the two biggest differences in these is monotheism. Monotheism believes in one God. Uh, Jews, Muslims, Christians believe in one God. And there's polytheism, which is many, many gods. Uh, Mormonism actually believes in many gods. One day, if you do the right thing, you get your own planet and you get spirit wives that get to be eternally pregnant and populate that planet. I have no idea why that's appealing to a woman. Your husband gets to be God, you get morning sickness forever, you're welcome. I don't get it, okay? But whatever. Uh, you, you've got like Hinduism, millions of gods, various cults. I just picked on Mormons because they like to use that verse to say, yes, there, there's, there's many gods. So when Jesus says, talks about Psalm 82, which is what he is quoting from when he says those words, the psalmist is talking about lords or rulers, little L, not big L, like, like for God. And so when Jesus uses a distinguishing thing here, this is, this is Psalm 82. Can I read to the NIV? Uh, Psalm 82, 1 through 4. It says this, God provides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Sound a little like Solomon, right? Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. 
What God is talking about here is judges and rulers that are not judging rightly. There are men who have been appointed by God as his image bearers in the world to bring God's law and just, justness and, and truth to places where there are human dilemmas. God's expectations were for these people to bring about truth and righteousness. And these guys are established to do this, but they're not doing it. They're not doing it. They're acting in the place of God. They're men with authority speaking for God, but they're sinning because they aren't doing it rightly. When Jesus comes and shows up, he is the one who actually does do it rightly. He is bringing justice and righteousness. He is coming in his life to remove wickedness so we can be brought back into relationship with God. And what do they do? They kill him because he doesn't fit our box, because he doesn't do what we think he should do. All goes back to Solomon's complaint. When Jesus and the psalmist refer to gods, it's not multiple deities. He's talking about men or women having authority who are doing things that are wicked and sinful that they should not be doing. God is displeased with them. It says that God will bring justice, but God does it in his time, in his way, in Jesus. Because the unjustness in our world will not stand forever. God will do something about it. And this should be ringing bells in religious leaders' heads at this point who are questioning Jesus and want him dead for speaking the truth. But it's so much like us. Because so often we look at God and we have all these expectations for God. You should be doing this and you should be doing that and you should be doing all these expectations. But we never once stop to ask, what is God's expectation for us? What does he call us into? Now let me talk to you, tell you about the beauty of the gospel, okay? You know what God's expectation is for us? To believe in the one he sent. That's the beauty of the gospel. The word believe, it, it means trust that we would place all that we are into who he is. God is going to restore us. And when we are restored to relationship with him, we actually begin to live differently as a result of believing and trusting in him. God's expectation for us as a people is to trust him, to be his image bearers, to not make him image us, but that we would be a people who begin to image him. And I would say when we look around the world and someone questions us about ourselves or our actions, our first response always must be, is there any truth in this? You've got to take a moment before you respond or react. Jesus is at the center of all kinds of events, but he always steers us back to the understanding of where our hope comes from. And yes, people ask questions about who God is and how, what God's doing and why is there injustice. It does us no good to get upset by the question because in all reality, the injustice in the world is humanly wrought. It is brought about by us. What do we get to do? We get to step into those places of those questions. And if you don't have the answers for all the questions, it doesn't matter. Because we get to point what God did in Jesus to rescue us. To bring us back into relationship with him. He is the only true God. He will bring justice. And we get to speak about his grace in the midst of that. We get to begin to live as his image bearers in this world. Because he has restored us to this place. So often what we do is we tend to look around at all the stuff going on around us or maybe things that we have done to hurt other people. And we have all this shame and all this guilt about it. Part of what Jesus does is to say it is about me and what I am doing and not what you have done. So I am going to rescue you from that guilt and shame. Have your eyes upon me and who I am. And when you do that, you will begin to live differently as my image bears. And you will bring hope and life to the world because your focus isn't on you. So often when we get stuck in guilt and shame, our eyes go just to ourselves. And look at all the bad stuff I've done. We get so caught up in that. 
But God is calling us to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto him and who he is and the restoration and the redemption and the hope. I mean, you want to talk about the difference of looking around the world and say, why is all of this injustice out there? Because God died to bring us back into relationship with him so that we could be a people who live out true justice and true righteousness, that we could stand against injustice. But we don't stand against injustice by being all offended and angry. We stand against injustice because we know what God did to rescue us, and that puts us in a position to talk about true and real justice. This is one of the reasons every week I try and steer you guys back to the place of communion. You take that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because our God sought us in our lost state where we ran away from him, where we had our own little checkbox of who he has to be. And God set that all aside and says, I'm going to rescue you where you are. And this is what we remember by his body and by his blood, that our God brings us back in by himself and what he has done. It's not about us trying to have more justice or righteousness in our lives. It's that Jesus places his righteousness upon us as a gift. And that teaches us to live in great hope and great freedom. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you guys to take communion. I'm going to let you know that there's a couple of deacons and elders that will be in the back. And if you're in a place today where maybe you've set all these expectations upon who God is, and it's like God's not filling my box, well, maybe today you should pray with them about God restoring you to understand who he is and what he is doing and that he has called you to be an image bearer of him, and he doesn't need to image us. We image who he is. That God will restore us to places of relationship, not just with him, but also with other people when we are fully committed to who he is because our lives are found in him. And if you need prayer, they love to pray with you about that. There's offering boxes next to every door we give because God gave so much to us giving as part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response to what God has done. Uh, there's some, I, I was told not to say food outside because really it's not food, it's, it's sweets. So there's, a, there's some cookies and stuff outside. Grab something to eat, maybe take some sermon notes. And maybe this week meet and talk to some other people about expectations. What expectations have you placed on God? And said, so, God, you must do this thing. What's the difference between trying to make God image you versus us being God's image bearers? Maybe begin to talk about that with other people. Because as a community, we're meant to come alongside one another and encourage one another to begin to live in those ways that God calls us to. But it always starts in the place of his hope and his redemption and his reconciliation of us. It doesn't start with us trying to do it better. It doesn't start with us trying to do it right. It starts with us in a place of surrender of who he is and what he has done. And that, in the end, is what will one day bring an end to injustice in this world. Is a body of people focused first upon him and living that out in the world in a way that reflects who he is. Always him first. Let's be a people who image him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us what it means to be a people who trust in you that we'd be able to look at the places in our lives where we're trying to make you image us, to look at the places where we've placed all kinds of unrealistic expectations upon you, expecting you to be like us. And in so doing, when we see that, I ask that you would steer our hearts not to places of guilt and shame because of what we've done, but places of hope because we understand the rescue that you have done for us that our eyes would get off of ourselves and on to you. 
that we would understand that there is nothing in this world that could separate us from who you are. And then that rather than leave us in our lost state, you've stepped in to our lives to rescue us and call us back to you. Father, teach us to honor you by living as your image bearers. And we ask that in so doing, that would affect everyone that we come into contact with in our lives. It it wouldn't just stay personal because it's not meant to stay personal. It would be lived out in what we do and what we say. How we filter everything that is said and done to us would be filtered through your redemption of us. And we would truly begin to see things differently because of your great grace given to us and that we would be a people who individually and corporately together worship who you are, who understand better the depth of your grace and that we'd be a people who love those around us and love you because you have first loved us. Make us day by day into people who image who you are. And we ask that in your son's good name. Amen.